Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. The rollback on the war on drugs is facing a test. It was 51 years ago when President Nixon declared drugs public enemy number one. And in the decades that followed, an offensive was waged that put millions of people in jail. Those people were disproportionately Black, Latinx, and low-income. Within the last 10 to 20 years, public attitudes have shifted, and policies have begun to shift with them. Just last year, a poll found that 83% of Americans believe that the war on drugs has failed. 64% of Americans supported repealing mandatory minimums for drug crimes, and 61% support commuting or reducing the sentences of people incarcerated for drugs. You can now also legally purchase recreational marijuana in 18 states. However, the rise in overdoses, crime, homelessness, and the perceived connection between these issues that we're now seeing in polling is creating a political challenge for those of us who want to continue to defuse the war on drugs. Here in Colorado, for example, the state legislature passed a bill this year with strong bipartisan support that will make possession of any drug or substance weighing one gram or more a felony if it contains even a trace amount of fentanyl in it, whether or not the possessor knows the drug contains fentanyl. This is significant for reasons including the fact that many drugs on the streets now contain fentanyl. Pharmaceutical fentanyl was originally developed to treat pain in cancer patients, and it's still used in medical settings for pain relief today. It's a synthetic opioid that's commonly produced for street sale in China, Mexico, and India as powder or pressed pills, and then exported here to the U.S., where it's mixed into other drugs like Xanax, meth, or cocaine. Drug dealers add fentanyl to enhance a drug's potency and to lower costs and maximize profit. A growing proportion of overdose deaths have been caused by fentanyl. And you can find people on all sides of this issue, I believe, who sincerely want to save the lives of those who are becoming addicted to and overdosing on these and other drugs. There is, however, some serious disagreement on how we do that. So on today's pod, I wanted to bring in somebody who is in the thick of this political debate. Cassandra Frederic, the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a national nonprofit that works to end the war on drugs. I also speak with Terrence Carroll, who is a former speaker of the Colorado House of Representatives, a lawyer, an ordained minister, and a police officer. From both his personal and professional experiences, he has a lot to contribute to this debate. It's a double header. Also, audio notes. I, I had COVID when I conducted these remote interviews, so apologies in advance for my voice. So let's get started. First up, Cassandra Frederic of Drug Policy Alliance. Cassandra Frederic, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I think people have heard the term war on drugs. I just want to make sure that we're all operating on the same terminology. You use the phrase war on drugs in your advocacy. What do you say is the war on drugs and what phase of that war are we in? Man, I mean, for me, when we're talking about the war on drugs, we're talking about drug prohibition. We're talking about the fact that people are getting ripped out of their homes, taken apart from their families. Our drug supply is completely poisoned and unregulated and adulterated talking about the millions and billions of dollars that are being wasted on enforcement interventions as opposed to building up health infrastructure for people. And for us, a war on drugs is really not on the drugs. The drugs are doing fine. Uh, it's actually a war on our communities, our loved ones, and people. Um, and I think that you know, politically, when they started talking about the war on drugs, it was this, this fallacy of an idea that the drugs would 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 hurt, right? But drugs are inanimate object, objects. And so in order for the war on drugs to actually be a war, you need casualties. And the casualties have not been the drugs, they've been the people. And so that's, that's what we're talking about when we say that the war on drugs is terrible. Um, and why we use it uh, is because we really want people to recognize that so much of what they're going through, all the harm, all the hurt, all the lack of support, 
um, is is an intentional choice. And so when you do your work, do you approach this issue with the mindset that people would be better off if they weren't doing drugs? Or do you approach it with the mindset that people are going to do drugs, let's accept it, it just mitigates the effects, or some other mindset? How do you approach this? I think for me, the drugs can be irrelevant. So people use drugs for multiple reasons, right? They use drugs to experiment. They use drugs to explore. They use drugs for joy. Some people use drugs for pain. And the way that I look at it is uh, we should be able to support people regardless of why they use drugs or if they don't use drugs. And so I don't have a moral uh, opinion on whether or not someone who should use drugs or not. I have the moral opinion of why doesn't our society have the tools to support people based on their choices? Um, and so that's how I approach it, which is like, what what is necessary for people to make the choices that they have every right to make? Um, and how do we support people throughout? Do you have a public health opinion? Like if we were talking about, I don't know, um, the overconsumption of sugar and the relationship to diabetes, or, you know, it would be like, yeah, people can make the choice to you know, uh, have a certain diet, but there are consequences to that. Do you apply like a similar approach to, to drugs or is it something different? I think people who use drugs, they should know the risk associated with them. They should know the things that come with it um, and that we should be able to give them the tools to mitigate the harms or the risk that they take. So for me, I, I don't use diabetes. I use sex, right? Like, listen, you can use, you can have sex, you can get an STD, you can get pregnant, you can um, navigate really emotional harm and you can have fun, right? And you can try different things. And I think our sex education has to be, I think it's important for us to be able to provide support for all those different um, instances. Let's talk about a couple other terms uh, that are used in this sphere. PWID, people who inject drugs. I think that's fairly straightforward. It's people who in inject drugs. There's also the term people who use drugs. I've been thinking about this term. Is this an identity? And who's, who's in this group? Like if I have a drink every week, am I, am I in that group? Who's in this group? For me, it depends on who, whatever the person says. I think people who use drugs is a really broad term. And it also brings out the different kinds of ways that people use drugs, right? So I think oftentimes people have focused, and I think in harm reduction in general, there has been a domination of intravenous drug users. Um, but there are people that snort drugs, smoke drugs, you know, put drugs up their butt, like, oh, there are different kinds of ways uh, to use drugs. And I think that that term really works to encompass all those things. And I think you get to be, you get to identify however you choose. I mean, I think that's one of the underpinnings of our movement is autonomy and people being able to determine how they want to identify in the space, what they want to do with their lives and how they want to thrive. You just mentioned another term, harm reduction. So this is, um, this is very, very familiar to someone like me who works in public health advocacy, but I think it's worth covering this term. What does harm reduction mean? Mm, I think it means different things to different people. But for me, harm reduction is, you know, uh, someone I look up to a lot um, and who taught me a lot is Daniel Raymond, um, who's a longtime drug policy harm reductionist. And, you know, he often says that harm reduction is both an intervention and a politic. Right, an intervention in how do you reduce uh, risky behaviors? So what are mitigation strategies that we can put in place to reduce the harms associated with certain behaviors? So for driving, uh, traffic lights, speed limits, seat belts, airbags, um, you know, the conversation of, you know, don't drive under the influence, uh, the, you know, for sex condoms or dental dams or regular checkups. Uh, for drugs, it's access to clean equipment, sterile syringes. It's uh, safer smoking kits, uh, which include clean glass pipes. Um, it's testing strips so people can know what is in the substances that they're using. It's education that if you use a certain substance, you know, you should probably ha have some roughage because you're going to get backed up. Like, it's all those kinds of uh tips and mitigation strategies that we can offer. 
I also think that harm reduction is a politic, right? And that there are structural harms that are set up. There's a structure that we are all navigating. And if we have to navigate this world and we're all coming into this world in different ways, some of us are closer to the harm than others. How are we working together to reduce those structural um, harms on different people? And what does that look like? What are the conversations that we need to do? I mean, I think that that's part of the thing where sometimes people get really confused about drug policy and they're like, why are you talking about housing? Why are you talking about universal basic income? Why are you talking about healthcare? And I think part of it is because those things make the immediate behavior that we're talking about harder to navigate. So someone who is struggling with drugs, who is unhoused, it's not just the drug use they're struggling with. They're struggling with the fact that they're unhoused and that that has to be a part of the conversation. And that's also part of the, the harm that people are navigating. And we need to not just figure out how do we get this person to be housed, but also why is there an issue of housing, right? Like, why is there an issue of affordable housing? Why are there so many unhoused people? Like, how are we, what is our contribution to make everyone safe in all the different ways? So for me, when I think about uh, people who use drugs that are organized in, let's say, a drug user union, so people that organize together who are people who use drugs, who are either in active use, come in and out of use, or are in recovery. That group of people, some of them who tend to be the most marginalized of the marginalized, if we ended the drug war tomorrow, they would still be organized because there's still other issues that they have to navigate. And so harm reduction as a politic recognizes that and also uses our work to build a platform for those harms to also lessen so that they might be in a situation where they can do other things that's not not connected to their immediate survival. Since we're talking about harm reduction, let's talk about overdose prevention sites. What are these and why are they useful? Mm -hmm. So overdose prevention centers are places where people who use drugs, mostly intravenously, can go to use under supervision. Part of the reason why we're pushing for overdose prevention centers is because our current drug supply is poisoned and it's poisoned with adulterants. The main adulterant that it's poisoned with currently is fentanyl, which is a more fast-acting opioid. And so we're giving people the opportunity to come inside, um, one, to deal with public use, which oftentimes people cite as part of nuisance, right, and public disorder. Um, We're giving people the opportunity to come inside use under supervision. So if an overdose is to occur, there's someone there to bring someone back to life. Also to give people better um, mitigation strategies on how to um, inject drugs in a way that don't create abscesses or infections or necrosis, right? Um, And also connecting people to other people, right? So oftentimes people can be using in isolation and don't have the resources or the information Um, to make different choices if they choose to. And so this also creates a touch point for people to get access to acupuncture, primary health care, mail, support, uh, treatment if they choose, potential housing supports if they need them. And so really it's focusing on how do we get people inside and connected um, and keep people alive. And This is something that has been around for over 30 years. Um, It's an international intervention. uh, And people are really, I think in the United States for a long time, people have really shied away from this conversation and this intervention. And I think we don't have the luxury of time um, because so many people are dying and they're dying. Most overdoses are preventable. If someone was there, they could bring them back and we wouldn't have so many funerals. And this is about creating a touch point for us to create connection for people and also for us to reduce the harms associated with a, an adulterated drug supply. And where are these sites now in the United States? So overdose prevention centers are not new. Um, people who use drugs have been taking care of each other for a very long time. Um, and so there are supervised injection facilities that are happening all across the country underground, right? Because 
People who are in community build community for themselves. There are two sanctioned overdose prevention centers in the U.S., um, in East Harlem and in Washington Heights in the state of New York. Um, and what we just saw is that in the six months that they've been operating, they opened in November 2021. In the six months that they've been operating, they have over, they have reversed over 300 overdoses. Um, they have had thousands upon thousands of people who have come into their facilities. Um, and they've also removed over 450,000 syringes in public spaces. And so these are, these are, these are, this is an intervention that does multiple things, right? It saves lives. It brings people in off the street. It reduces public waste um, and it connects people to resources. And what would you say to somebody who would raise concern about these centers um, if they said that, hey, all you're doing is, you know, perpetuating or encouraging use of these drugs and addiction by helping them out? What, what would you say? So we get this very often. And I think for me, one of the things that I often say is, what, what are you trying to get to? Right? Because what I'm trying to get to is to keep people alive. If you and I agree that people should be alive, let's talk about what is currently happening. People are dying in bathrooms, under bridges, in, in their homes, and by themselves. This is giving people the opportunity to stay alive because we're reversing overdoses as soon as we see them. And that help means different things to different people. And that I cannot create a definition of help that works for me and not for the other person. And if the person doesn't think it's help, then it's not help. And I think that's one of the biggest things that is a structural issue that we have to navigate is that oftentimes people with the most resources or or the people that are in the decision-making space, in the decision-making place, often think that they can ascribe what help is to another person. And I am here for that person. So that person has to tell me, what do they need? Do they need more, do they need uh, a place to stay? Do they need a place to use? Do they need a testing strip? Do they need help with their access? Do they need connection to supports? Those are the things that they want. And as someone who's a social worker, you can't give help. You can't give the help that you want to someone. You got to give them the help that they want. And that our work is really not about what we what we enable is someone being alive. Right. That's what we enable. That's what we focus on. Our focus is on keeping people alive, giving them the resources and accesses to the tools so that they make they continue to make the decisions that work best for them. Drugs and criminalization right now is a, a very hot political topic. Uh, it's shifting, you know, rapidly um, in multiple ways, but just want to talk about a, a couple of them here. So back in 2020, um, you all made history in Oregon with your allies out there in passing uh, a decriminalization statewide measure um, that decriminalized drugs. It was the first of its type, uh, at least statewide, in the United States. Um, and then this year, so that was two years ago, and this year, it seems like things are changing. You know, here in Colorado, um, there's been legislation to increase criminal penalty for possession of even trace amounts of fentanyl, for example. Out in Washington state, they're pursuing a measure similar to the one in Oregon, and the polling looks more challenging. What's going on? What changed? What's this debate, and how can we affect it? Mm, yeah. So I think part of the thing is that more people are dying, right? We have the overdose rate continues to go up. The drug supply is more volatile um, and people are scared. And I think oftentimes when people are scared, they go to what they know and what we know is criminalization. And I also think that there are people who are frustrated. Um, and I think they're frustrated by the inaction of a lot of actors who are not actually giving the resources that we actually need. You know, folks believe that if, you know, if we are not arresting people, we, we have to do something for people to not use drugs. And what we're saying is we can't arrest people. We have to invest and resources, and we have to give people the opportunity and the pathway to make choices that work for them. And that change is not fast, 
right? And I think a lot of people want instant gratification and human behavior does not work like that. And we have to give people the opportunity um, to make choices for themselves. And I think the other thing is that people are conflating the overdose crisis with our lack of affordable housing in this country, the lack of housing in this country. Um, you're having large groups of people who are in streets, right? In the downtown Denver area, in the downtown Portland area, in the downtown Seattle area, who are unhoused. People are using drugs in the street. People are having serious mental health um, experiences. And everyone is like, listen, we might not want people to be incarcerated, but we don't want this, right? And I think the thing that people miss understand is we don't want that either, right? That the people on the drug policy side, we also don't want people to be struggling on the street, but it's not just the drug use that is happening here, right? There are multiple issues that are being conflated and people, what they know is to criminalize drugs as a way to, to navigate this, but we've already have 50 years of history that shows us that this is not effective. And so it's frustrating for us, because we're like, why are we doing the same thing again? We know that this is not going to work. What we need to do is put more resources in health infrastructure and support and public health to actually support people. And there's a lot of public disinformation out there that continues to perpetuate um, stereotypes and stigma um, and, this, and that fills this thirst for punishment that we have. It's highly racialized, it's highly classist um, and, and xenophobic. And it makes it really difficult for us to push through because this is what we've always known. And so while I think that thing, the, the, the winds are shifting a bit, people know that the direction we're going in doesn't work, but I think a lot of people are exasperated. And I think it's, I think there's going to need to be multiple movements that work together for us to actually deal with the multi-layered issue that is at hand. Speaking of direction, um, marijuana, you know, that seems to have been and continues to be going in a liberalization, I'll say, direction. It's become legal in 18 states. Recreational is illegal in, in, in 18 states, uh, many more states. Um, medical marijuana is legal. How does that issue, if at all, relate to uh, this issue with drugs like fentanyl? And how do you describe the relationship between the two? I think we're learning a lot from marijuana uh, regulation in that we're learning what it means to bring a drug above ground. And I think what it shows us is that we can do it. And there are multiple ways that there are multiple things that we have to think about. We have to think about industry. We have to think about access. We have to think about safety. We have to think about purity. And it also shows us what is necessary for us to move forward. You know, for a long time, people conflated all drugs together, right? Then there was the, the distinction between hard and soft drugs, right? Which I don't ascribe to. Um, but I think the moment that we're in currently uh, with the overdose crisis and juxtaposed next to marijuana legalization, just shows how far we have to go in getting people to understand how the responses to drugs um, can be varied. But if our underlining uh, thesis is that criminalization doesn't work, that if criminalization doesn't work for cannabis, it also doesn't work for the other drugs, even the drugs that we're scared of, right? Um, like people shouldn't be incarcerated for substances. They shouldn't have to like navigate a criminal justice system in order to get access to help. And I think it's important for us to have conversations about conversation about the differences between substances, but also have a conversation about like, what is the underlying principles as to why we liberalize um, drug laws for cannabis, right? It's that the criminal justice system is an inappropriate place for drugs, for all drugs. Um, and I think that that is why you're seeing people in Oregon push for drug decriminalization, why you're seeing decriminalization bills showing up everywhere because people are recognizing like, there are things that the police should not be dealing with. They should not be dealing with folks that are struggling with mental health. They should not be dealing with people who are unhoused. They should not be dealing with people who are struggling with substance use. And I think it's important that both these conversations are happening at the same time. 
um, and that we're learning from both conversations at the same time. Because if we want to end drug prohibition, we need to be paying attention to uh, not only what we're navigating, but also where we're trying to go and making making tweaks along the way. In order for you to be successful in your work, you're going to have to in part see candidates elected who are on your side. You're going to have to pass ballot measures to further your agenda. I'm wondering, what do you see as your winning political coalition? Who's in it? Mm, everyone. I think that... <laughs> I think that we need uh, folks that are working on complicated human behaviors and their family and loved ones. I think that we are moving um, in a place where we're getting, we have to build the bigger tent. Uh, I think oftentimes one of the most sobering things about the overdose crisis is that it touched a lot of people. And I think it made more people clue in to what the harms are of criminalization and the struggles associated with addiction. And we have to make this an everyday person problem um, and something that everyone is committed to um, and recognizing that people and getting people to recognize that we need to invest in our communities in order for us to have the outcomes that we desire. Um, and so it's not just the social justice folks, right? It's the folks that are, uh, that care, that are on the PTA, that care about their community. It's the folks that are gardening. It's the folks, it's everyone. Like, I know that sounds really hyperbolic, but it, but the drug war has really pervade, is super insidious and it has hit multiple systems and has destabilized us in ways that we see and we don't see. And we need people to pay attention um, and recognize the really, uh, extravagant structure that we're all navigating so that everyone can take a piece of it down um, so that we can actually build the space for the world that we all need. Do you think that you need a bad guy in this narrative? What I mean um, is that oftentimes it's politically useful to have one and thinking back about the opioid crisis when it first emerged, you know, uh, Purdue Pharma, for example, was cast as a as a perhaps useful bad guy, you know, people, you know, got on these pills and then they went away and they transferred to other drugs, etc. Do you need one in, in your advocacy? And if so, who is that? I think we're all the bad guy in some way. Um, Cause all of us are pretty much complicit. Um, we're electing the elect, we are electing the legislators that are passing these bad laws. I think that Purdue was a bad actor. But I think that that I think that's the same bad actor that you can do in multiple systems, right? People, Nestle is a bad actor in water. Like McDonald's is a bad actor in like childhood obesity. Like advocacy always has a bad guy, and it can be useful. But I think that it's also limited, right? Because when Purdue goes away, the problem's still here. Um, and so then, who do you fight? So I think part of it is recognizing that this is everyone's responsibility. Um, and so the conversation is less about who the bad guy is and what is my role in taking this apart. I liked your answer. Um, you know, uh, the more I think about this, like, I think our own lizard brains, I'll say, uh, our own fear um, can often be the bad guy. I'm a, I'm a parent. Um, you know, m one of my kids is coming to the age where drugs are coming into the equation in schools and it scares the hell out of me. Um, and I can feel myself having feelings of, you know, that aren't necessarily rational about how to deal with these things. I know intellectually that they're wrong, but, but you're right. I think that uh, that's probably within all of us. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes when we, you know, Miriam Kaba, who is a social justice leader, she often talks about when we talk about policing, you know, people want to talk about reducing the role of policing in our lives. It's like, first, first think about the police officer that's in your head, right? Um, and I think the same goes for the drug war. Who is the, who is, what is the voice around drugs in your mind? And it, and I don't want to be facetious. It's not easy for parents, right? Parents are scared about a lot of things, not just drugs, right? Just walking across the street, going to school, like look at what's happening in the world. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that we can do individually in our own lives, in our own conversations that we're having in our communities that can lessen the burden and can lessen the stigma and the discrimination 
and the punitive nature of how we respond to drugs. Um, and it, I think oftentimes people misunderstand the advocacy that we do at Drug Policy Alliance that is like, it's like a free for all, whatever happens goes, that's not it at all, right? Our conversation, let's say for you with young people is like, hey, drugs are out here, right? And let's talk about all the reasons why you could want to use drugs or you could want to experiment. And let's talk about all the risks associated with it. And like, let's also talk about if you take the risk, where do you get help? All those things can't happen if your conversation is don't do drugs. And I would be very disappointed in you. And it's really upsetting. And I don't want you to live in my house. You closed so many doors that you could have intervened in, right? And, you know, I hear, I hear parents when they're like, I just don't want to deal with it. Understandable, right? There are many loops and turns. Um, but as a parent, your responsibility is to be on all the loops. And you've already decided, you've already signed up for that. So don't abdicate your responsibility from being through all the loops with your young person. And what are the things that you can offer to your young person that might reduce the risk associated with experimentation, right? And you already do it, or you should be already doing it when it comes to sex and gender and like what they learn in school. Uh, drugs is just one another one of those things that we have to add in the way that we talk with each other. Um, does it have different consequences? Is the risk factor higher? Potentially. Um, but that's all the more reason to keep all the doors open um, and to give people more um, opportunity uh, to touch back and to build connection so that if people get in trouble, they know where to go. A lot of part of the thing is like people don't know where to go. And then that's how we get in trouble. Cassandra, this has been great. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. You can find out more about Drug Policy Alliance at drugpolicy.org. Let's now move to former Colorado Speaker of the House and current police officer, among other things, the Honorable Terrence Carroll. Terrence Carroll, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you've been Speaker of the House here in Colorado. You're a lawyer, you're an advocate, but you've also served as a police officer. And so I'm wondering, how has that particular experience informed your view about the role of the criminal justice system and its intersection with drug possession? It informs my worldview in this area because you know, I've been on the ground doing policing in some way or another since, you know, I was, you know, 23 years old, um, either full time reserve or, or, or part time. And, and then you combine that with the fact that, you know, in the legislature before I became speaker, I was actually chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and criminal justice policy is, is something that I was very interested in and I'm still interested in. And then probably most importantly for me is that I grew up in probably one of the worst neighborhoods in the country at the time in Southeast Washington, DC. And my life was directly impacted by the war on drugs and drug use and people who were addicted because at the time, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't live where I lived and not have a family member or friend, some acquaintance or somebody who was associated with the drug trade or addicted to drugs or, in, or otherwise adjacent to the entire industry. So for me, this is not um, an academic pursuit or a political pursuit. It, it, it is about real life and, and how people, um, are impacted in their real lives. Part of what led me to have this conversation with you was a tweet that I saw that you made um, in which you said, I have a great deal of respect for Governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, but here he is absolutely wrong. I've personally seen the impact of drug policy used as a sledgehammer and not a scalpel. This fentanyl crisis can't be fixed through overcriminalization. That was in reference to a comment that he had made in an interview um, comparing fentanyl to anthrax. And the broader context was that we were having a legislative debate at the time or earlier this year here in Colorado about legislation that would um, up the penalties 
for uh, possession of fentanyl. So you only had, what do you have on Twitter, uh, 280 characters to express yourself then. I was wondering if you could tell me more about what led you to make that tweet. You know, I, I've been following the fentanyl debate at a distance and, and I had other things going on and I saw I wasn't necessarily going to engage. And when I saw the governor's comments about anthrax and fentanyl and and needing to do this because people were dying, um, I could agree with the general principle that people are dying and we need to do something about the crisis. But I became very frustrated because, you know, as politicians tend to do, you know, they're hyper reactive. And sometimes that hyper reactivity leads to hyperbole, which leads to bad public policy. And I thought, and I still do think that the policy pursued um, is bad public policy and awful. And it, and it just hit a button with me, especially when, you know, again, as I said earlier, you know, I've, I've seen directly, not even just in my law enforcement career, but in my with family and friends how the war on drugs and that rhetoric and the policies that come out of it have absurd results. And so we go after, you know, the end user. And instead of it, trying to get them the help that they need, we criminalize them and we fill our jails with low-level drug offenders, and which is part of the reason that our jails are faced overcrowding for years and years and years. And, and to be truthful, you know, part of me thought, you know, you have people who necessarily didn't grow up in that type of environment or surrounded by people who were addicts, not just occasionally, but you see them every day. You have to walk by them to get to school. You have to walk by addicts to get to the grocery store. You live next door to them. They come to your family events. And when you have those types of experiences, it makes you more empathetic to what they're going to. And I think many, I think when it comes to public policy, the, the byword has to be empathy. You have to think about how does this impact the least of these? I don't think the governor or anybody else who is involved in this necessarily stopped and thought about how are those who are most marginalized, which are the people who are addicted, going to be impacted by this? And I thought, you know, we're gonna we're going right down a path that we've already seen before. And we saw how. Um, the crack cocaine crisis led to absurd results. You had people in jail for small amounts of crack cocaine, and now we're looking at fentanyl. And yes, fentanyl is deadly, but do you want to lock up end users um, who may not even know what they're getting in the pills and may not even know or however else they get their drugs delivered. They're just trying to get a high. And I think that was missed out the whole debate. It was a law enforcement focus focused debate and not a public health debate. And it's a public health crisis. Yeah, I noticed that uh, Mayor Hancock, who I also uh, respect, um, had a forum uh, uh, on this issue where he was touting the interest uh, in taking a public health approach uh, to the problem, but there were no public health people there. It was just law enforcement folks who should have a voice in this debate too, but I just found that curious. Yeah, I noticed that as well, that there were no public health professionals and mostly law enforcement, if not all law enforcement. And the, the craziness about all of that is that during the George Floyd protest um, of just about two years ago now, if not, it was two years ago. And one of the things that came out of the discussions about defund the police um, from the folks who were took that position and from the position of, and then the side of the folks who said we need more resources in law enforcement, yet folks in law enforcement saying, it's not our job to fix social ills. And I, I agree with that. But here we are going back to this idea that in order to get out of the crisis and to stop deaths, that our first priority has to be a law enforcement fix. And the law enforcement fix long-term, I mean, short-term, it may yield results in terms of you're arresting more people, but long-term, you're not fixing the root of the problem is that people feel the need to engage in drug use for some reason to, um, I mean, it's, I guess it's a variety of reasons, to ease the pain in their lives, to fill a void. And when you, when you arrest someone, you're not necessarily filling that void. You're not addressing the root cause that's making someone think, 
yeah, the only way out of this is that I just got to do this. I need to feel less pain. Um, I need to feel less hurt. I mean, whatever's in their heart that's causing them, whatever's eating away at their soul, the law enforcement approach does not address that. So you're a former politician. You can read a poll. And I'm sure you know that current polling shows high concern about the overdose crisis, high concern about crime, high concern about people experiencing homelessness and the conflation between all of those issues. So I'm wondering, say you're a a state legislative candidate right now, and you can expect to get questions about these issues, fentanyl, criminal penalties, etc. If you were a candidate today, how would you respond to a voter who was concerned about fentanyl, crime, and their family's safety? I mean, I, I would be honest, and I, I mean, I, I don't think I ever pandered, at least I hope I didn't pander when I was in office. I would be honest and say, yeah, it's a real issue. And it's something that we have to be, that we have to address, and we have to address it forthrightly and directly. And the answer is not locking everyone up. The answer is taking a holistic approach. I mean, there has to be some law enforcement associated with this. But more importantly, there has to be, you know, a public health and mental health response to this. And we have to think about where our priorities are and how we address fentanyl. Do we first, you know, arrest people or do we try to find alternatives to arrest? And I I think long term, if if, if politicians are going to be honest with voters, we have to socialize, you know, the idea that locking people up and throwing away the key has never been successful um, when it comes to addressing crime. You know, it has to go back to, you know, why do people feel they need to commit crime? But also, I know as someone who arrest people, has arrested people, will probably continue arresting people, that sometimes people have to be arrested. Sometimes some people have to go to jail. And that's a and that's a true thing. And so I so I I have a I don't want to say I have two minds. For me it's a much more complicated and nuanced you know, discussion. And I think the problem with modern day politics and probably been the problem with politics since time immemorial is that nuance is not the friend of politicians Um, or they they try to ignore nuance. They want to give, you know, simple, quick answers, which really get us nowhere. Um, It doesn't advance discussion. It doesn't solve the problem. And I would say that directly to voters. I mean, if you want a black and white answer, don't vote for me. Uh, because what got us here was not a black and white thing. It was much more complicated, much more nuanced, much more complex. And so if you want someone who's going to give you nuanced, if you're going to give you these black and white um, reactive answers, I'm just not the guy for you. There is a lot of nuance to this issue. And like, there's a lot of um, kind of unusual blurring of coalitions in this debate. And back when we were having this legislative debate here in Colorado about fentanyl, I heard from a lot of folks on the progressive left who are my friends, who frankly took issue with the way that um, uh, I and uh, Healthier Colorado were engaging on this issue, coming at it from a public health perspective versus a criminal justice perspective. And you know, one friend sent me um, a really great piece from Colorado Public Radio, and the, the title was, Treatment Wasn't Working, would jail have saved a woman in Lakewood from fentanyl? And it was a tragic story about a woman who was overdosing constantly. And somebody who cared about her speculated that maybe if she would have been put in jail, then maybe they could have been separated from the drugs and woken her up. And maybe that would have helped per- helped her pursue a different path. Um, what do you think about that argument? It's a certainly an appealing argument if you get the person taken out of the situation that's causing them to get high um, for some period of time that maybe, just maybe, that'll be this, that'll be the straw that breaks the camel back camel's back and they won't go back to using fentanyl. I know from personal and professional experience, it doesn't work like that. Um, I just um, posted a new profile picture on Facebook and I cropped out most of it. It's me as a two-year-old, maybe one and a half, two years old. Um, what the picture doesn't show in the back is one of my baby cousins um, who was sitting in the stroller. And my mother was taking care of her and her young and her my other baby cousin because she, their mother was a drug addict. And this was back in the early 70s. And so their mother was involved in 
heroin and you know whatever they what I forgot what they used to call in the day it had a had a different name but it was it was heroin and so my mother had to take care of these two little babies off and on for over 10 to 15 years um, because their mother their mother's mother their mother's sister the entire family was caught up in the drug world um, and addicted they've been arrested several times they got into treatment several times but all it did was provide a momentary respite, a momentary break, because as I think there's a study that shows that it takes more than once for a person to, if they are going to get sober if they and, and get on the wagon, it takes more than one time, most of the time. Unfortunately, you know, for my family, they never got right. And they ended up, you know, succumbing to that lifestyle. So I, I, I think this idea that you can arrest someone and that's going to be the, the cure-all is not the case. Two weeks ago, probably when I was on duty, about two weeks ago, um, I myself and a fellow officer took someone in on a detox. So granted, it's alcohol. It wasn't fentanyl. But as you probably know, alcohol addiction, alcoholism can be is it's just as strong as addiction as anything else. If you, if you know anyone who's an alcoholic or been around alcoholics, took this guy to detox because, you know, he took a lunch break and went and got super drunk, probably had to be a good 0.35 when we got to him and was passed out in his vehicle in a parking lot. We took him in and on the way to detox, we had a conversation with him. And in that conversation, the guy revealed to us that he had, he had already had two DUIs. He had just spent a year in treatment for alcoholism. But here he is after a year in treatment, we still have to take him to detox because he still hasn't got that beast out of him, I mean, off of his back. And so... I've, 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 I don't want to say it's not disingenuous is not the word I'm looking for, but I find it it's naive. I find it very naive when people say maybe if we can just arrest them and it just give them a little break that somehow that's going to work. You know, I don't think the research I'm not a, you know, a researcher on this area, but I mean, I do. I, mean, I did stay at a holiday Inn last night, so I may have some thoughts on it, but <laughs> to play around with the commercial. Um, but I, I think if you were to look at research on this, it would probably show that simply locking someone up to get them away from drugs doesn't long term really fix the problem. I want to shift gears here for a second. Um, you were in office from about 2003 to 2011. In that time, you rose to Speaker of the House. Let's say in a time travel experiment that we transported the 2003 version of Terrence Carroll to present day. My question is, in this scenario, would you still run for office? Why or why not? You know, I actually just tweeted about this yesterday or earlier this week in response to someone else's tweet. Um, and I said, you know, I'd probably never run for office again, more than likely. I, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, even in 2003, I was a hesitant candidate. Um, and my plan then was only to serve maybe a term or two and go back to a normal life and those types of things. And I, I, I think I wouldn't run now because I don't think folks necessarily value the idea of this is going to this is hard for me to say. I don't know if folks necessarily value the idea of thoughtfulness in public policy. Um, People, people have gone to their corners and and oftentimes their corners are preconceived notions of how the world should be. And when you have a preconceived notion and you're hard line in that preconceived notion, it makes it difficult for you to engage a person who you think doesn't believe the same way you believe in terms of your preconceived notions and ideologies. And as a result, you don't necessarily get good public policy. And there's an incentive for people to say more and more wild things um, in order to get elected. Um, and part of that has to do with how we elect people. Um, 
when you look at our primaries um, in both parties, it's a small percentage of voters who actually determine who ends up who end up in the General Assembly. And they tend to reflect that small percentage of voters who show up at caucuses and assemblies. And they tend to be um, the most diehard and probably the most I don't want to call them extreme because that, would be, that, that that's not most necessarily, you know, fair to them. But, you know, they're necess- they are those who are most committed to um, the most hard line positions of their parties. And that's not very helpful at the end of the day. So, Speaking. no, I, I don't know if I could get through a primary today because I'm not going to say anything wild and crazy. Uh, I'm not going to try to be a celebrity politician. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a yeah, I, I'm a person who, you know, I think I owe it to people to be transparent and forthright in where I'm coming from on policy positions. And I think I owe it to people to have discussions with people who don't agree with me. And part of it has to do with my faith. You know, there's a saying in the Bible, iron sharpens iron. Um, You know, you have to engage with the other. And sometimes the other is someone who doesn't think like you or look like you, but you have to engage them. And I take the position that, you know, even in my most broken place, you know, someone like Jesus Christ found their way to me, when, you know, and someone who's perfect engages someone who's imperfect, um, as it was the case with me, marvelous things that can happen. And I think the same thing is true in politics is that, you know, when all of us who are imperfect engage with each other, whether we agree or not, we may just find some place where we can actually do some good work on behalf of the citizens of our state and the citizens of our nation. Well, you've been very thoughtful with your words here today. I sincerely appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Cassandra and Terrence, and thank you for listening. I'm sorry it's been so long since our last episode post. I promise we'll get a new one up sooner, but you might miss it if you don't subscribe. So please do that if you haven't already. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.